0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second part of our Out of Hospital Cardiac Arrest series. You are about to join in on the podcast with the Associate Director of the UC Division of EMS, Dr. Dustin Calhoun, along with two UC Division of EMS fellows, Dr. Michael Bohansky and Dr. Justin Benoit, as well as two UC Division of EMS educators. Josh Borkowski and Keith Widmeyer.
1: But that teamwork and pre-planning is a big component to this. It's truthfully, it's hard to measure, it's hard to critique during your QA processes and it it can be tough to train because you're not always training with the crew that you're working with. You're training in a CPR class or an ACLS update or whatever it is and it's not necessarily the crew you're going to work with on next shift. The pre-planning and training of this is huge. And so I want to spend a couple minutes talking about that. You'll hear the term pit crew CPR, that That term refers specifically to this, to this teamwork model where they talk about being like a NASCAR pit crew where everybody knows their defined role. And taking that approach to cardiac arrest or something similar to that is fantastic where you know before you show up on scene or as soon as you do show up on scene and recognize that it's a cardiac arrest exactly what your role is going to be. That takes a little bit of time and planning. So if this is, um, if you're a fire-based group, you're working out of the same house with the same guys every three days, you may know your role ahead of time over exactly who's going to do what when you roll up on scene, or this may just be the discussion on the way to the scene of a respiratory distress, suspected cardiac arrest, who's going to be managing the airway first, who's going to be responsible for the IV, who's going to be our first chest compressor, so people know those roles ahead of time. Inevitably, and everybody has been on this scene before, cardiac arrests are chaotic scenes, even when you have planned them well and even when you've got a crew that knows how to plan them very well. Once you have settled into the rhythm of this, of you've got somebody performing chest compressions, you're starting to get your other things set up and get the patients on the monitor or get the pads on or whatever it is that you're doing, you've got yourself in a rhythm. The next step is to have whoever is in charge and running the the resuscitation, start to think about what the rotation is going to be. Who is going to be the next person doing chest compressions? What is going to be the next step? So that we've got a little bit of planing going on in real time on the site there to make sure that there are not these big, long pauses of, well, I thought you were going next, or I thought I was going next, or who's moving what direction I was going to move up to the head. Those things, they seem very, very short. They add big pauses, and the planning and teamwork part of this is huge. Um, So if you get a chance um, at the beginning of a shift or you're working with a company that you work with every single day in and day out, take out a a CPR mannequin or recessive ante, something like that, practice the rotation. Think about how you're going to work your way around um, a cardiac arrest victim, uh, so that the next time you're on scene, those transitions are smooth. Smooth is short, it decreases those pauses, and it allows you to focus on all these other interventions and
2: performing high-quality chest compressions. That's, you know, we're, we're largely, like you mentioned, uh, largely a fire-based EMS system in this area, um, in, in southwest Ohio. And in the fire world, there's tons of pre-planning that goes on, right? If you ask any firefighter, any firehouse around here, what's the biggest building in your run area, And what, you know, if you get a fire there, where's the engine going to park? Who's tagging the hydrant? Who's coming off? You know, what part of the engine with the irons? Who's grabbing what attack line and where they're going? Everybody knows what their role is going to be for that pre-plan. And then you ask them how often that building burns. And hopefully the answer is not very often. Whereas you ask them how often we get a cardiac arrest. Most people are getting a reasonable number of cardiac arrests. That's just the nature of the human body. Um, But if you ask Uh, your average crew whose job is it to grab that body and pull it to wherever you can run a good resuscitation who is it that's going to be the first set of hands on that chest who is it that their job is going to be shock or no shock decision making that kind of pre-planning we do a lot less even though we use it a lot more Um, so I think that you can't overemphasize the stuff that Dr. Rohansky was just saying Josh, mentioned
1: earlier that one of the things that um, I had done recently was attend one of these resuscitation academies, and we'll put in a little plug for them here. There is a um, group that is Seattle-based that puts on a a course called Resuscitation Academy. You may see them all around the country. They practice and and teach this in a number of different regions. But one of the things they frequently teach is is sort of the way that they train their paramedics versus their uh, EMTs um, in Seattle. So one of the things to put in the plug here is, is how their teamwork functions in that the chest compressors, the EMT basics, know their roles, know where they're going to be, have their rotation set up ahead of time, um, so when they get on the scene, they can do those things. And the paramedics are then responsible for maneuvering and, and managing the monitor, maneuvering figuring out what the airway stuff is going to be, their IV versus IO access, and their medication administrations. So they're working side by side, but not interfering with one another. Anybody who has seen um, one of the cardiac arrests where another paramedic or another supervisor or another provider of of some sort shows up and interrupts the flow of things, that ends up being very detrimental to the patient. They want to see the rhythm themselves. They want to perform some procedure that um, hasn't been successful so far. Um, The goal here is to work in concert and work um, simultaneously so that those chest compressions are not getting interrupted, that they're getting that good quality, high performance, high quality CPR and the ACLS interventions, the airway, the medication, the rhythm analysis stuff um, that so those
3: two are not interfering with one another. You know, to me, one of the biggest things about this teamwork issue, too, from a paramedic standpoint, is that the more this is pre-planned and the more it's a machine and the more, you know, everybody knows their role and the BLS guys knows their role. And, you know, you're talking about how they have it pre-planned and, you know, you're going to be compressor number one, you're going to be compressor number two. Then the paramedic, I think, can take a step back and can take a breath and kind of think about what's going on and make sure that we're doing high quality CPR. And then, time those defibrillations so they're perfect and make sure that we're giving the right medicines when it's time to give the right medicines or figure out when the right time is to place the airway or which device we're going to use. You know, I think those are the best resuscitations when that paramedic can take a step back because he knows his team is going to do the the core stuff, the high quality CPR. And then they, for example, might be able to think through the H's and T's if your patient's in PEA or something like that and try to figure out, you know, what else can be done.
2: Yeah, that last point you made there I think is something that's super important. The The more we emphasize running cardiac arrests in the field and, and starting to see more and more field termination when we feel like everything has been done, that's fine for what's sort of loosely referred to as your average cardiac arrest. But there are situations out there that should still go to the hospital, right? I mean, there are a tricyclic antidepressant overdose. You don't carry enough bicarb on your ambulance to take care of a true tricyclic antidepressant overdose. So you've got to have somebody there who isn't so sucked into the, okay, switch now. Okay, is there a pulse? Okay, give this drug now, um, that they can sit back and run through those H's and T's. And I think if we start forgetting about that aspect, the higher medical decision-making part of this, um, then we may eventually start harming people with our in-the-field running of these codes if we don't take some of that higher process thought out there into that part.
3: Yeah. And actually, you know, bouncing off of that, I'm going to just jump back to the airway with two thoughts as we've been talking. Two other thoughts popped into my head. Um, One is, again, that higher level of thinking and trying to think through what's going on. What's the bigger picture? You know, this is not, uh, you know, it's not evidence based, but this is the way I tend to think about it. And one of the ways I teach about the airway is you know use it like any other intervention. So if you rolled up on scene and you, you know the person was awake when you got there and they were complaining of chest pain, crushing chest pain, oh my god, you know, and he has diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and then boom, jumps into V fib and arrests in front of you. I mean, that's probably a cardiac event, right? We should focus on CPR. We should focus on defibrillation as fast as possible. Whereas if you roll up on scene and the person was short of breath and I have COPD and I've been smoking for a million years and they're hypoxic and you know and then they go into cardiac arrest that might be more of a respiratory arrest and so then maybe you know the airway should receive a little bit more priority again i'll put a disclaimer there that that's not evidence-based but i think it's the same thing you're talking about it's trying to think through the disease process that's the higher level things that the paramedics are doing while the bls guys are just doing rockin cpr just a quick other uh, note just because it popped into my head as you asked me um, you know what airway things do can we say for sure And you know the other one that I realized I didn't say, and it is one of the five things that the AHA is focusing on, is not hyperventilating. We know that's bad as well. And again, it sounds simple, but everybody gets excited when they're on a cardiac arrest. We do it in the ED, we do it in the field, and everybody starts squeezing that bag like crazy. But when your heart isn't beating on its own, it really doesn't need as much oxygen, and we really want to focus on a breath every six seconds, ten times a minute. Talk through
2: that, though, a little bit. Explain why. Just... Kind of like the thing I mentioned earlier about the why release is so important, even though people in the past don't tend to think about the fact that that's when the heart is getting its perfusion. Talk through what happens when you hyperventilate. What's going on inside the chest when you hyperventilate that patient? Yeah,
3: I mean, there's two big things that happen. I mean, if you are going crazy and squeezing that bag way too fast – Two bad things are happening. First, you're blowing a lot of air and oxygen into the chest. And so that increases the pressure inside the chest. When you increase the pressure in the chest, that squeezes the heart. And not in a good way. It it squeezes it and it keeps squeezing it because there's all this pressure in there. So now the heart isn't filling with blood. It's not moving blood. Your CPR isn't as effective. So hyperventilating actually decreases how much blood is moving around the body. That's problem number one. Problem number two when you hyperventilate is that if you blow all the CO2 out of the patient's blood, the blood vessels in the brain actually squeeze and constrict. And so you end up cutting off Blood flow to the brain. So, if you hyperventilate, you're actually making less blood flow around the body and you're preventing blood from getting to the brain. It's a double whammy. And that's why, for a lot of things, there's good evidence that shows that hyperventilation is bad. We want to keep it slow.
0: So, I understand that you're saying we should go with a lower rate. But does that mean I should try and get as much of that 800 to 1,000 milliliters of air into that patient on those, those lower breath rates?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good question. And it's something that we've talked about a lot is that, you know, right now the only way we even can measure what you do with that bag valve mask is how frequently you squeezed it. And even that is actually hard to measure as of right now. And so, you know, what we really probably care about is, title volume which is just basically a fancy way of saying how much air actually went in and out of the body in any given minute so I could squeeze 10 times a minute but if I'm giving little baby breaths versus I'm trying to mash that entire bag into the patient that's a lot of difference in terms of how much air is moving it, again you know to be a an evidence-based uh, you know stickler I'd say we don't know for sure what the right answer is to that but absolutely I mean classic teaching is that you only squeeze the bag enough to just barely see the chest rise and I think that's still the case uh, probably the bigger thing we see is just super increased rate of you know 20 30 times a minute and that is just way too fast we want to be shooting for 10. Dr. Bohanski will you, will you throw out a couple of the because you were talking about the recessive academy that you went to I think the
2: two-day thing I went to the one-day thing attached to a conference would you throw out there some of the tips because they have some really interesting tips on how to make sure you're not doing too big a breath and how to count your breathing you know we're all taught the whole count to six and breathe kind of thing they have a different way of doing it that I kind of like.
1: Yeah, So a, a couple of the tidbits there. Um, and again, as, as Dr. Benoit said, we don't have a ton of great evidence here, but the theoretical concerns of increased intrathoracic pressure or blowing off that end CO2 not only mean we don't want to be breathing fast, but we probably don't want to be giving big, deep ventilations. So a couple of things that are taught or that you may see out there, some folks are teaching to only use like your index and middle finger as well as a thumb to squeeze the bag. So you can't use your whole hand. You can't squeeze all the air. So you're giving smaller breaths per breath. Um, some folks have actually switched to pediatric BVMs for their cardiac arrests, where during, you know, in their first in bag or whatever it is, they grab all their cardiac arrest stuff, stuff from the bag they're grabbing is a smaller bag. So they necessarily have to be able to give a, uh,
2: a smaller tidal volume. The, the rate thing that I was talking about that I find kind of interesting, and this isn't exactly related to the how much, but while we're talking about breathing, you know, I was always trained, and I'm assuming most people listening were trained, you give a breath when you're when you're doing it, not the 30 to 2 method, which is another topic we'll get to, but when you're doing it with an advanced airway, you're giving a breath every 5 to 6 seconds, right? So you're giving 10 a minute. I was always taught to count it that way, right? I'm counting 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, et cetera, et cetera. And then... I got thinking about it, and they mentioned it at this course, um, you're the only one counting seconds. You're know, you on that whole scene, and everybody that's on that scene running that arrest, you're the only one counting seconds. Everybody else is thinking about compression rate. So it's very easy to do the math and convert your seconds to a compression rate, and that's what I've been teaching lately. I love it. Um, I teach people to do a breath every 10 compressions as opposed to every 5 or 6 seconds, and part of the reason I like that is that it gets everybody on the same rhythm, so that now I've got two people who's only purpose is to think about that rhythm i got the guy that's bagging is thinking about the rhythm and i got the guy that's compressing that's thinking about the rhythm and they can sort of keep each other in check if one sees the other going too fast and it just it it seems a little bit simpler in putting the whole team on that same rhythm it's just one other little tidbit they threw out there that I was really enthralled with
1: while we're thinking about this just because it's coming it's uh, you know the kind of the next tangent here is should we be stopping to give breaths if we don't have an advanced airway? Um, I bring that up because there was a paper published just in December about two different uh, modalities um, that were studied on a national scale. So you may have seen this in the area where you're practicing, where some folks were were performing with this 30 to 2 no advanced airway uh, method. And other folks were continuing on on a method that we were just kind of talking about with this breath every 10 chest compressions without pausing. Um, so there was no pause in chest compressions. There were two minutes directly straight of chest compressions, the, uh, the ventilations occurring every 10 breaths. What were your guys' thoughts about that paper and what that does for us uh, going forward with our cardiac arrest?
2: Well, and some of the more finer details of the research aspect of it, I'll definitely let Dr. Benoit comment on. I thought it was really interesting because I thought it was going to wind It's a great study. It's, it's from the, uh, the ROC. Um, I think it had 23,000 or some odd patients involved. So it should be great data. Um, So I I just made the assumption that it was going to come out saying that we should stop the pausing because the pausing makes no sense if you think about the pressure. Everybody knows that concept of priming the pump. You know, you're spending almost half, at least a third, if not half of that time of your 30 seconds building up some pressure, and you just barely get to a good systolic pressure with your compressions right about 30 seconds, and then in the two or three seconds that you're pausing, you lose all of that, uh, that pressure head that you've developed in the diastolic and systolic end. So it makes sense to me that, that doing continuous compressions and just doing the BVM the same way we've always trained people to do with an advanced airway or a supraglottic airway, um, that that would be beneficial. And and really, if you're bagging properly and you're not blowing way too much air into the patient and filling up their stomach and causing them to vomit um, and you're getting a good mask seal, you should be able to accomplish this. But the paper didn't really show that. The paper seemed to show that they were, they were essentially equivalent. Um, the, The odd part was if you got a little more into the weeds, and I can't take credit for having noticed this myself, it was pointed out to me, but the compression fraction that we mentioned earlier between the two groups, again, it should be significantly lower in the 30 to 2 group compared to the continuous group. It wasn't. The compression fraction was statistically about the same. With that, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a difference. Um, But then they did some other stuff to it, which I couldn't even pretend to explain very well. So I'm going to let Dr. Benoit try and explain that difference and see how he interprets what they did there.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was interesting because as you point out, the main result of the study was that it didn't make a difference. What they tried to do is, uh, you know, there were some cardiac arrests where it was sort of 30 to 2, but it was sort of continuous and it was kind of blurry. And what they did is they kind of went after the fact and they looked at patients who really clearly got a true 30 to 2 resuscitation. And then they took other patients who really, truly got a continuous CPR, you know, which is breaths every 10 second kind of resuscitation. And then they compared those two groups. So again, it's a little bit problematic to do this from a research standpoint because, you know, you're selecting, you're picking and choosing the patients you want. It's not as perfect as the true randomized method that was done in the primary results. But when you do it this way, interestingly, the, uh, the group that seemed to do a little bit better was the one that was getting... 30 to 2, which I think a lot of people were a little bit surprised about. Now, again, the data for this kind of subgroup analysis, it's not perfect. I don't know if it's definitive where it says, you know, thou must do 30 to 2. What it tells me is there's still some stuff going on with the airway and how we breathe for people. And so right now the focus is on high-quality CPR, and I don't think that's going to change. But I think in coming years we're probably going to be seeing more about How should we be breathing for the person? Because it seems like it does make a difference. It's not just something we do, whatever. You know, just like we used to think, well, CPR, CPR, who cares? Now we're putting really specific metrics around our CPR. I think the same thing is going to come for how we breathe for the person. I was thinking
1: maybe we make a little jump here um, and talk a little bit about the cardiac arrest resuscitation medications, the ACLS drugs that we're using. Um, specifically, anybody who has researched it a bunch of times has been doing this for a long time. You've seen a number of medications fall off of the list. Um, most recently, in the most recent AHA update, vasopressin was taken off the list. There was just a uh, study published on the use of amiodarone and VFib arrests. Let's talk a little bit about what drugs we are using, why, and what we think the future of, uh, of drugs and cardiac arrest includes.
2: So I'll throw out there just before we get in, because there is some new data, um, like Dr. Vancey mentioned about amiodarone that, that somebody ought to talk to. Um, and then there were some studies out of Australia that are kind of like, actually, I hadn't thought about it this way, but they're kind of like that rock study we just discussed where the end result said one thing, but if you really get into the weeds of it and start interpreting it, it may have said the exact opposite. So I'll just throw out there some of the, sort of the baseline understanding. What's the stuff that you would get if you read through the detailed portions of the AHA guidelines? And then we can go on the newer data from there. So, you know, the big drugs that we're talking about, we're talking about epi, um, we were talking about vasopressin, we're talking about amiodarone, lidocaine, um, and then maybe bicarbon, and, and you know, get further and further down the list. So epinephrine, um, lots of data back and forth. Bottom line seems to tend and trend toward the idea that there's good, solid reasoning to think that epinephrine increases your chance of ROSC, but doesn't necessarily, or hasn't necessarily been proven to increase your chance of good overall survival and and discharge from hospital. Amiodarone has kind of a similar uh, set of data, a little bit less robust, where again, shows increase in ROSC. Um, but uh, until this newer paper, it doesn't necessarily show increase in, in survival from hospital. Um, lidocaine, which a lot of people in their minds anyways, I, I, I think, lump together as amiodarone, and lidocaine kind of interchangeable. Um, lidocaine doesn't really have a lot of evidence that shows it does a whole lot of anything through the resuscitation process. Um, bicarb is down there with some, it's recommended to not be in every code, but certain circumstances, it makes sense at various places. And then vasopressin, um, vasopressin, and this we may get into a little bit of a debate here because I don't know if we all have the same opinion on this. I was frustrated by the vasopressin thing um, because there are there's small studies, but but data is, at least some data is better than no data. There were small studies that showed an increase in in survival and discharge with a package of vasopressin and steroids. Granted, they were small studies. We're talking hundreds of patients, not thousands of patients, but they showed a benefit there. And my read of the AHA guidelines basically says we took it out to simplify it. So I had a real hard time with that when that happened because we're removing a drug that there maybe was at least a little bit of evidence for um, and there's a logical basis for. I finally got over it when I basically realized that nobody could get a hold of the stuff around here anyways and it was ridiculously expensive. (laughs) So I was making an argument for a drug that nobody was going to have even if if I got them to agree to get it. Um, So it kind of fell by the wayside. Um, but that's one that was removed for, for various reasons. So I'd love to hear others' thoughts on that, and I definitely want the other two guys here who uh, to comment on some of the newer data that they, they mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's talk about epi and epi and vasopressin here real quickly. Um, so the epi data, exactly like you stated, there's data for increased rates of ROSC, ret- returning a spontaneous circulation with epinephrine, there are a couple of studies looking at varying doses and things like that that are sort of ongoing. The current dose of the the one milligram every uh, forty-five minutes has stayed has stood, and that's that's what's currently in the protocols and is staying there. That seems to make sense theoretically to me that if we're getting pulses back, we're at least putting patients back in the possible range of then being discharged from the hospital neurologically intact. Whereas if they're not getting pulses back, I know that I'm not going to have the, at least the possibility of them being discharged from the hospital neurologically intact. So that has stuck around. That seems to be a drug that makes sense and what we're going to continue to research its utilization and dosage kind of going forward. Exactly as you mentioned, as far as vasopressin goes, um, the AHA's statement was that the the only studies where it has proven to be somewhat beneficial were as part of this package with steroids, particularly in in in-hospital cardiac arrests, um, not necessarily out of hospital cardiac arrests, and that they didn't feel that there was significant difference in any outcomes of the vasopressin versus epinephrine. Um, so if we have two drugs that may be doing approximately the same type of thing, one is easy to give and we're, we're going to continue to study. The other was in, studied in a, a different population in a combination of drugs. The, the HA statement was, let's go ahead and streamline, let's, let's take it down to one medication. I think it's reasonable. I don't particularly miss vasopressin and I think that's okay.
3: I agree. I don't miss vasopressin.
0: I miss my <laughs> vasopressin, but yeah. <laughs> oh, well. I was just going to say, uh, just from a um, an EMS logistics aspect, I know that uh, some of the services that I've worked for in, in uh, previous years, that we took it off. Uh, we made an administrative decision to take of pressing off just on the logistics aspect for a caring to for you know the same purpose, but b the having it, the way the only way it came packaged was two vials you had to get two vials you had to draw it up and you know while it in itself it's not that much but when you have everything else going on that was a big reason for us why we ended up. I agree, right, it's logistically difficult and and expensive. I mean that's a consideration yes. that you have to
2: have in all of medicine these days. Is Know, what are you having to give up to have this drug and and I that's sort of where I finally folded on the issue.
0: So um, one other question on drugs one of the drugs that you left out was Narcan and I know that we've talked about Narcan in uh, ACLS for years so I was just wondering why that was left out.
2: So so right now Dr. Benoit is laughing himself out of his chair and Dr. Bohensky is beating his head up against the table um so while they're doing that um the uh, it, it's it's at the surface, it, it, it is, I understand why people come to the thought that maybe we should give Narcan to these patients, especially if we're seeing an epidemic of you find a patient who's not moving, not breathing, they probably took heroin or something like that. I completely agree where that mindset comes from. Um, the problem is you've got to think through the physiology of it. Narcan, primarily the, the opiates, they're mostly reducing your respiratory drive. Um, they're not really the thing that stops your heart. They reduce your respiratory drive to a point where your hypoxia and hypercapnia um, lead to a cardiac arrest. But once that has happened and you actually have the cardiac arrest, the ship has kind of sailed. Um, You can can get rid of that blockade to that person's respiratory drive all you want to. It's not going to restart their heart. And once you're running a code on that person, you've taken over the breathing for them. You are their respiratory drive at that point. Um, So the Narcan just doesn't have that benefit. So I see the logic um, or the, the sort of logical flaw that leads a lot of people to think that it is useful, um, but it essentially is just one more thing that complicates the resuscitation, one more waste of 20 or $30 in the process, and then one more chance at poking
3: yourself with a needle. The one thing I will say on it is that what the AHA actually says about Narcan is they say, you know, if it's really early in the resuscitation, like you just got on scene and maybe you're not sure if the patient has a pulse or not, and you want to give them a shot of Narcan real quick just to see if they wake up, the AHA says that's reasonable. And I think that's reasonable too. I mean, we've all been there where it's like, I thought I felt a pulse. Did you feel a pulse? Who felt a pulse? You know, whatever. If you're in that early stage, okay, I'm cool with it. But, you know, when you see that Narcan being given 10, 15, 20 minutes The resuscitation, it's not going to restart the heart. So, just the one other thing to mention
1: here if you're practicing outside of our local area here in southwest Ohio and your protocols do call for Narcan and cardiac arrest. There is a tiny bit of data to support it. And this is where the AHA has said, maybe it's reasonable. And there are some protocols and some medical directors out there that still want you using it. There is a tiny bit of data to support it. There was a study that was published in 2010 in resuscitation that looked at a total of 36 patients that got Narcan during their cardiac arrest. And specifically the thing that they were able to show while they were just kind of anecdotally looking at these charts was that some patients had rhythm changes after the administration of Narcan. Now, everything, we just has mentioned here is that we have a ton of drugs that we have continued to study in cardiac arrest, um, some with some good efficacy, some without good efficacy. This is a small study that shows a little bit of rhythm change, not necessarily any survival benefit, certainly no big randomized trials to tell us, yes, it definitely works. The authors in this argue for some of the peripheral opioid receptors in the bodies, things that may change some of the blood pressure sort of parameters, things that honestly I don't know a whole lot about. Other than I I support the the current mentality uh, around the table here of Narcan is most efficacious for restarting the respiratory drive in a patient who is apneic or only has agonal respirations. If you show up with a patient who fits that bill and may have a pulse still, they are a fantastic candidate for Narcan, and I think that makes a lot of sense. If they have already gotten to the point where uh, their heart is no longer beating, uh, there are other priorities here. Focus on the chest compressions, focus on the airway. If you get them back into perfusing rhythm and then want to administer some Narcan and see if they can increase their respiratory drive again, I think that makes a lot of sense. But in the meantime, um, I do not currently advocate for it
3: um, as part of the drug administrations during cardiac arrest. You know, and I think the last thing you said is the key is that there's so many other things we need to do. And there's so much evidence for the other things we need to be doing. Let's focus on the things that have clear evidence. Who knows? Maybe we're all wrong. Maybe in five years, there'll be some perfect study that shows that Narcan works and we were all wrong. And if so, that's cool. But for right now, the evidence is behind the other things. Let's spend time doing evidence-based things. So I guess the other one to talk about, maybe a little bit, is uh, is amiodarone. We sort of started to uh, um, touch on it some, but there was another big study uh, that was published recently that looked at amiodarone versus lidocaine um, versus placebo for shockable cardiac arrest. Um, an interesting study, another big time randomized control study done by uh, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium or the ROCK, and. A little bit interesting because much like that thirty to two versus continuous, the sort of the, the the key finding of the study, you know, if you look at the conclusion of the front page of the article, it says there's you know there's no difference. But really, when you started to dig in and you looked at some of the patients and some of the different ways they analyzed it and some of the subgroups, I think what's Pretty clear in my opinion, and I'll you know hear everybody else's comments, is that patients did better with amio or lidocaine. There wasn't a clear difference between amio and lidocaine, but it seemed like both of them was better or you know, either one of those was better than doing nothing, i.e placebo. So kind of an interesting study. You may hear some people out there say, oh, it didn't matter, you know, and it's true. The, uh, the key of finding was that uh, it didn't make a difference, but a lot of the other analysis that was done showed that it did make a difference. And so one of the key things I'll talk about that, you know, from a research standpoint is whenever you do a research study, you have to define some sort of outcome. You know, what is the thing that you're going to study the most? And so, uh, for this study, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was neurologically intact survival to discharge. or was it just hospital discharge? I'd yeah, so you know that was the main outcome they looked at. And so in that when they looked at that specific outcome, neurologically intact survival to discharge, there wasn't a difference. But when they looked at some of the other outcomes like, you know, did the patient get a pulse back? Did they survive long enough to be admitted to the hospital? That's where we start seeing that amio and lidocaine were better than placebo. And so I think, you know, it's not perfect. You know, we'd like to show that things go all the way through to neurologically intact survival. But a lot of things happen to patients after They've been admitted to the hospital that we can't control as EMS people. And that may change who survives and who dies and everything like that. So the fact that these drugs are getting a pulse back, they're getting ROS, which is, in my opinion, what they're designed to do. They're designed to affect the rhythm of the heart so that when you shock it or whatever, you can get them back. It is doing that. I think a lot of people's conclusion from that paper was, yes, keep doing amio. Um, you know, It is better than placebo, maybe well, lido too.
2: How big was the, uh, the study? How was it powered as far as detection? I don't remember that. Um, do, I, do you remember the, the difference that was required for them to detect the difference? Because that's an issue that we see with some studies, right, Dr. Benoit, is that their study detect a, a difference that is a much bigger difference than I would consider to be clinically significant. I can't remember if that was the case with this study. No, what.
3: absolutely. That was another part of it. And this gets into some pretty nerdy research issues that I don't want to bore people with. But you're absolutely right. You know, when you design a study, you design it to try to detect a certain difference. So if Amio is truly better than a placebo, you know, uh, you had to see, a pretty big effect before you'd actually see it mathematically, that mathematically we could prove there was a difference. And so they only enrolled enough patients so that I think it was somewhere around a 6% difference in survival, that's a pretty big difference. I mean, to me, you know, if there was a, a 3% survival, you know, that AMEO, say, got, you know, 3% more p- patients back, I think that's important. I mean, I would probably say, yeah, use, lo- uh, use amio, But, you know, because of the way the study was, um, you know, they, they wouldn't see that 3% difference. So you're right. I think that was another reason why some people are saying, you know, uh, you know, that the core result said there wasn't a difference. But when you really look at a lot of the data more clearly, I think, you know, we're seeing that AMEO, um was winning. And again, it was a great study, huge study, challenging study to do. Um, and it provided a lot of good evidence. But it's one of those papers where I think you've really got to read the whole paper to see what actually happened.
2: So you're still, you're, for squads that you do medical records for, I know I am, I'm, I'm still recommending using AMEO, um, I'm, and I'm still recommending amio over lidocaine, um, even though the study doesn't necessarily help us much there.
3: Yeah, I think it does help us. I think you just have to read the paper carefully, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would stay with the amio. Yeah. And and
1: just to kind of reiterate what we just said there about cardiac arrest research in general, this is one of the things that ends up being most frustrating for pre-hospital providers is the data keeps changing. The uh, guidelines or recommendations keep changing. Unfortunately, it changes because of studies like this, which are hard to conduct. And it's hard to say exactly what it is that affects the outcome of a patient who walks out of the hospital after a cardiac arrest. Was it the fact that, Uh, They got a particular drug in the pre hospital setting. Was it the fact that they were cooled in the hospital? Was it any other number of things that happened during a prolonged course of this acute illness that all happened that that fell into place for this good outcome for the patient? Um, These are really tough studies to perform and stuff, tough data to say this is definitely what made the difference in this particular patient population. That said, you're going to continue to see these types of studies performed over the next several years or decades, the guidelines are going to continue to be tweaked and changed as we get more and more data. Glad that we're getting these nice big randomized control trials now to help us uh, um, affect change while we continue to do the, the uh, basic science studies or the animal studies um, to look for some of the other data, put it all together and hopefully
3: get some uh, survival. And, you know, that's probably the last thing that, or you know, uh, talking about that, that might be worth mentioning is, you know, when all these things we've been changing, I mean, if you look on a national scale, you know, over the last decade or 15 years, you know, are we doing the right thing? Is all this stuff we're talking about actually making a difference? And we're actually starting to see that, that on a national scale, survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is getting better. And I think it's fair to say Americans aren't getting healthier. So we must <laughs> yeah. be doing something right. So, you know, there's bumps along the way. Maybe we say something's right. You know, maybe we love vaso and then five years later we don't. But overall, we're actually moving in the right direction. So the, all these things we're talking about, these are key changes. What do you guys
1: think, um, so EMS providers listening to this, um, EMS chief uh, looking to, to make some changes within their department uh, as far as their cardiac arrest care, what are the key takeaway points
2: from our discussion today? To me, it's, it's really get back to basics. Get back to recognizing, make sure that when you're doing something and you're putting energy and effort into revising a plan, revising a policy or a procedure, that you're making sure that the things that you're emphasizing are the things that are important. Um, and the things that are super important here, I know we spent the last 10, 15 minutes talking about drugs and the costly stuff, but the stuff that's really important here is the free stuff, right? Um, it doesn't cost any more to only have one pause every two minutes. It doesn't cost any more to try and organize this other than maybe the the, the effort of a little bit of training. Um, but that's the stuff that's making a huge difference. So putting our emphasis on those things, um, emphasizing those simple things that we now have data to prove that just doing an action slightly differently makes a huge difference um that's the kind of stuff that i, I want to see people emphasizing that the peri shock pause stuff the quality th- those four things that we were for what I, I can't even count four or five things that we mentioned at the very beginning um the rate the uh the release um the compression fraction um appropriate ventilation um those are the things that, that really make a difference and spending our efforts improving those doesn't really cost us anything, and I think that's fantastic.
3: I think one of the take-home points I have about all this is that, you know, we have more evidence than we ever have before on what the right thing is to do. And these things are improving outcomes. And so one of the other take-home points I would say is that if you do all of these things we're talking about, patients really do have a shot of surviving. You know, I think sometimes people get a little jaded and say, oh, well, you know, this one, forget it, it's hopeless. But, you know, we're seeing patients of patients, er, we've seen situations where patients are in getting undergoing CPR for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 40 minutes. 50 minutes and still walking out of the hospital. So if you're really doing good CPR, really thinking through your resuscitation, these patients can walk out of the hospital. Don't give up on them. And my only last piece here is that I, I consider there to be sort of three phases of
1: this high performance CPR. There's the training component. This is before the cardiac arrest occurs where you and the crew that you work with are figuring out the rotations, figuring out how to hit the numbers and hit the metrics appropriately appropriately. There's the second component that is during the cardiac arrest, making sure you're focusing on this and that you're prioritizing those quality chest compressions. And then the third component, and this is talk to whoever uh, um, your shift supervisor is, talk to your EMS chief, talk to your medical director. This is how do you get the QA information back? If your monitor has the ability to uh, record any of the information from the cardiac arrest, you can go back and review it after the fact it gives you the chance to say, "Okay, where were the pauses? How were the chest compressions actually done and that way you can make changes and improve for the future.
0: I'd say probably the biggest thing that i'd I'd like to see a bigger focus on is just situational awareness just you know being aware of the entire scene everybody you know it's everybody's responsibility to stay on timing and everything else, and just having that global awareness is just, probably paramount
1: for me uh this is the idealistic educator coming out in me but uh just train practice uh get your crews however you do this however however you accomplish these you know core goals that we're talking about in cardiac arrest management uh get your crews together plan these things train together on these items because as dr benoit said you will see improvement uh in in your survival rates if you can improve on these key metrics that we've been talking about so get together with your crews and uh, practice as much as you can Yeah, as far as going forward um, for you and your departments, feel free to reach out to us in particular with any questions. Um, We'll put some links up as well for the Resuscitation Academy in in Seattle runs courses that we talked about, but also has a lot of free materials online, Um, and we'll put some links into some of the key uh, papers that we're talking about here so you can look at some of this primary data yourself. Yeah, absolutely. This was uh, an awesome discussion. You guys rocked. I appreciate uh, all your time, and uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, being with us. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for hosting it.